as we continue on in the exposition of this text. Let's read verses 9 down to verse 15. This is what the Word of God says. Beginning in verse 9, it says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to us and revealing to us the path of assurance, the path of hope, so that in this life, as we trust you and patiently wait for you, you will not disappoint us. And so, Lord, we pray for your help now. We pray a great blessing over our church, over your word. Give us ears to hear now, Lord, what your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, again, this is um, the second, pa- second sermon on this passage, living in light of the promise, living in light of the promise, because this is really what we're dealing with here is Uh, The fact that the author of Hebrews is calling these believers to live in a certain way with a certain quality of life as they await the outcome of the promise that God made to them, particularly the new covenant promise, which the book of Hebrews is really all about. But now we're considering the life of Abraham as a paradigm of living in light of God's promises, and this is a good example for us to follow When we look back on the history of redemption, we see the shadow of Abraham, if you would, towering over the redemptive landscape. There is no figure in redemptive history that casts such a massive shadow of importance over all that God reveals, not only to them, to the patriarchs, but then to Israel and to the church He is a a figure of such great biblical theological significance that I do not even have the time to begin to delve into all that Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham means for our Christian life, but it is immense. It is all tied into what God promised Abraham, and we'll see some aspects of that. But we will see Abraham's faith uh, in chapter 11, where the author of Hebrews is going to really highlight for us the nature of Abraham's faith and how he walked with God. But let me just say here that when we're thinking about Abraham as an example, there are three aspects of his faith, namely the entrance of faith or, or Abraham's entrance into faith, and we see that in chapter 12 of Genesis. And um, th- that is why Uh, Paul, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, uses uh, Abraham as that paradigm, that example, that type of what is saving faith like. And then we also see Abraham walking with God in a holy communion bond where God tells Abraham uh, how he ought to walk. He tells tells him in in, uh, Genesis 15 that he was to walk blameless before him that he was to be blameless before him so that Abraham becomes for us a pattern of sanctification, not just justification. And then really the focus of Hebrews here, we also see that Scripture puts forward Abraham as a model of perseverance that we can pattern our lives after as he lived in light of the promise that God had made to him, even though he was a stranger 
and a sojourner in this world. You feel like a stranger and a sojourner in this world from time to time? Uh, that's because that's what you are. Peter, matter of fact, calls us that very thing in the epistle of Peter. He calls us exiles, aliens. We are strangers in this place. And so Abraham, it's no surprise that he is set forth as this example. And uh, the author of Hebrews is pulling deep from the history of redemption to show us something relevant and practical to our Christian lives today and now. And now. And so the whole purpose of this exhortation is to get everyone thinking, every man, woman, and child in this church was to contemplate the example that is set before them. They are to think of their Christian walk. They are to think of their perseverance. He wanted every single person on board, as it were. He didn't want any man left out. Every person had to feel the weight of what he was saying. And now, let me just tell you that in ministry, this is not an easy task. Getting everybody on board for anything is not an easy task in ministry. But when we're talking about salvation, when we're talking about realizing the hope, realizing the end of our salvation, receiving the, the or rather the end of our faith, receiving the salvation of our souls, that's the way that Peter puts it, this is a weighty matter that none of us can afford to ignore. So what's his aim? What is the pastor's aim here? His whole aim is to bolster the zeal and the assurance of the people of God. That is what he wants for them. He wants to give them a hope like Abraham that one day will be fully realized. Or rather, he wants to really give them that assurance that comes from justification. And so, how does he do this? In two ways. Number one, he calls the church to imitation, or we can say imitation in general, the principle of imitation. And so I want, to, I want you to look back at verse 11 with me. Look at what he says there in verse 11 again. He says, we desire that each one of you would show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That is a sermon, brothers and sisters, in and of itself. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but watch this, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Or there it is in the plural, the promises as opposed to the singular redemptive promise that God made to Abraham in the covenant of Abraham, we have in the new covenant all of these promises in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That is to say, it is through Jesus that all that God promises to be for you is going to be realized. You cannot come into the realization of one promise of God apart from Jesus Christ. And so here, he's calling us to imitate those who have gone before and have lived an exemplary life of faith in the realm especially of endurance. Now, I think what he's doing here is giving, leaving it general because there is many, many examples. There are many, many people that we can imitate. And uh, I think he really wants us to look back to the Old Testament. He's done this, after all, throughout the letter. If you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he has reminded them time and time and time again of Old Testament example after Old Testament example of those who had gone before them as an example for them, either of disobedience or obedience. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the things that happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, these were laid down for us as an example so that we would not crave evil things like they did. And over and over, statements like that are made. Hebrews 4 verse 1 says, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it, there is that distributive element again. Any of you 
He says, for indeed, we had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those that heard. Now, this is referring initially to entrance into the faith, whereas here, He's talking about persevering in the faith. But I want you to zero in your eyes, brothers and sisters, to make you accountable before God to what he's saying here. Zero in on the words, each one of you. You see, because the type of Christianity that he's calling us to is a high Christianity. It is not low. You remember, if you go back to the context from which all of this comes, you go back to chapter 5, verse 11, concerning Jesus and his Melchizedekian priesthood. We have a lot of things to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. And then he goes on and on about how infant-like they are. The fact that they're immature, the fact that they're stunted in their growth, they don't know how to harness theology. They need somebody, in fact, to teach them all over again the ABCs of Christianity. And they want to focus in on those basic teachings and not move on to deeper, more solid food, what he calls, what is, or, or what he calls solid food, because that's for the mature. That's for people that want to increase in their faith. But he doesn't just call all of them to something ambiguous or general, he zeroes in on one thing that is key for their perseverance. Look at what he says. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. So has to realize the full assurance of hope. So he zeroes in on this word here, diligence, spude, which basically can mean something like some, an earnest impulse, an earnest passion, a zealous commitment. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, this word in the Greek just simply means move quickly. <laughs> he expects them to expedite on the things that he has set before them. He expects them to follow through with the instructions that he's giving them. This zeal, however, is not just for zeal in and of itself. It's not just enough to be zealous, right? The whole purpose of this is not just calling them to the manner in which they should live with this diligent heart, this diligent life, this diligent commitment, but he also speaks to the quality of life that he wants, to, uh, to, he wants them to have. This phrase, full assurance of hope. Could there be anything more glorious than this? That Scripture sets before us the way to full assurance of hope so that we can live securely, at peace, so that we can have on a subjective level, on an existential level, on an experiential and experimental level, so that we can have true, legitimate peace with God that is fueled by this assurance and this hope that we ought to have. Now, let me just give you a little bit of the theology of this hope. This hope, we are told in Romans 5, 5, will not disappoint us. It will not disappoint us. And the hope is speaking about what? It's speaking about eschatological hope ultimately. It's talking about that your salvation one day will issue forth in what it promises to give you, which is ultimately consummation, communion with God, everlasting life, eternal life with God. We are told in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that we have this hope laid up in heaven for us. It is reserved there. you got a ticket there, to put it in the most basic layman terms. You have a reservation. And God wants you to live in such a way where you are aiming to keep it. It is a hope where, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it's a hope where we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. But there is a balance here that is critical. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, you actually get one of the most balanced statements on this whole issue of your sanctification, your perseverance, your endurance, all of these things. But Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 12, 
gives us the fine tension of the Christian life. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, uh, not as in my absence only, he says, but now much more, he said, or my presence, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we know ultimately that at the very bottom of it, it is the sovereign power of God that is at work in us. After all, He is the only explanation why you woke up this morning. He is the only reason that heart of yours kept pumping blood. He's the only reason why some catastrophic situation didn't occur. He's the only reason why you didn't die of an aneurysm. God sustains us. He keeps us. But He does so because He expects us, therefore, to work with all diligence, with all zeal, with all commitment and fervor and passion towards our goal towards the goal, towards the mark, towards the upward call, as Paul will say later in chapter 3, the upward call in Christ Jesus. We're given the assurance of the Spirit, which is a gift. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 17, we are given this glorious assurance by the Spirit of God who testifies to our spirit that we are a child of God. That we are a child of God. There is an fallible assurance that comes into our heart because of the Spirit of God. There is, a, there is a testimony that the Spirit of God is speaking to our hearts that no man can see and no man can touch. And no, no amount of atheistic arguments, no amount of undermining the tenacity of Scripture, no amount of liberalism can affect the essence of of what the Spirit is communicating to our spirit, which is that we are, in fact, the children of God, that we belong to Him, that we were birthed from Him, and that we will one day return to Him. That's what it means to be a child of God, that one day, having been adopted, we will go home with Him. We're also given the objective assurance, subjective, the Spirit objectively. We are also given assurance through the gospel and through the Word of God that promises us eternal life. That's part of a, a, a gospel presentation, by the way. When you are presenting the gospel, I know some brethren without uh, yesterday uh, open-air preaching and preaching uh, down in uh, Plano and but part of our gospel presentation is that we promise that upon repentance and faith, there is for them the hope of eternal life. We promise them what the gospel promises them. And Hebrews promises the very same thing, that we have this great assurance. Look right there in chapter 6, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. He says this, this hope, and we'll get there, we have as an anchored of the soul. Could there be anything more glorious than that? I guess there could because I just got done saying something was so glorious and there's nothing more glorious than that. Sometimes there's a problem with superlative speech. You're always one-upping yourself. <clears throat> but anyway, it is glorious. We have a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. What is that? Well, that is obviously talking about the presence of God. That's talking about the presence of God. I forgot to clip this thing before I got up here. Now it's bugging me to death. Sorry, that's okay. It's okay, sound guys. Stay where you are. We'll make it. This is a hope. This is a surety that remains steadfast, one that enters within the veil. Within the veil speaks of the raw glory of the presence of God. It was where in the tabernacle only one person can go. Once a year, the high priest, he would go in there and he would make 
He would make atonement for the people. He would offer up the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And now we are told that we have a hope that enters within the veil. In other words, it connects us there. We are anchored there where Jesus has entered as a forerunner. The Greek word there meaning a trailblazer. He is our leader, our captain. He goes in front of us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's what he's been trying to get them to understand. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 10, he's saying, we want to talk to you about Melchizedek. It's so important, but you're not getting it because you're still on milk. But you see, we are talking about going into the very presence of God with Jesus Christ. This is where we're going. And this is why he demands of them zeal, obedience, commitment. This is the purpose of his call to imitation. It's for perseverance. And you know that because he says there at the end of verse 11, the full realization of, or the, uh, to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Meaning we got to have the long view in our Christian life. I've heard people who have gotten saved, I've heard the testimonies and I've experienced the apostasy and I've seen people go from a place of apparent rejoicing, apparent commitment to Christ, apparent celebration over the things of God and then life gets hard. And as the parable of the sower says, trials come in, the world comes in, it chokes out the word, your joy is zapped and what do you got left? If you're Christianity is based on happiness, then you have the wrong foundation. The word happiness comes from the word happen chance, which means you are living for your circumstances. Okay, things are going pretty good. I kind of like this Christian thing. I'm getting friends and community and, you know, people are smiling at me and blah, blah, blah. And, and then trials come in and take that all away. And what do you got left? This is the difference between happiness and joy. Joy is the Christian ethic, it's the Christian uh, emotion that is not changed by the circumstances, but it transcends all of our circumstances so that we can maintain a divine joy, this transcendent joy, a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And who was Peter talking to when he said that? A persecuted church. A church under persecution. A church that had probably seen people in their congregation martyred for their faith. And Paul, or Peter is talking about transcendent joy. A joy that cannot be touched. As Jesus, say, Jesus said in John 13, a joy that cannot be taken away. So he points them to imitate others because we need help. We need heroes. We need examples. That's why I love church history. I can just pick up a, a book on church history, pick up, pick up a biography of church history, and you got a hero right there. Now, not perfection. <laughs> no one is perfect. I mean, he's going to talk about Abraham. We know Abraham was not perfect. So it's not perfection that we seek from these examples. What we seek from them is how to imitate their perseverance. And, and let me just back up here to talk about the issue of imitation. This is a principle that you would do well to study. To go, even if you just did a concordance study of the word imitate or imitators or imitate in a verb or something like that, what you find is a whole theology in the Bible of imitation. For example, we are told to imitate other Orthodox churches. This is imitation on a corporate level. This is a whole church being told to pattern themselves other, after other Orthodox churches. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Brethren, you became imitators of the church of God. The churches, excuse me, the churches of God in Christ. We're also called to follow the faith of our spiritual leaders, our pastors, our elders, and others, teachers of the church, mentors of the church, theologians of the church, missionaries of the church. Hebrews uh, uh, 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. 
a clear call to imitation. Also, we are called to imitate individual people like Paul. Paul tells the whole church in Philippians 3.17, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us, that is in the apostles. In Philippians 4.9, again, he says this, Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you have great turmoil in your life, if you have this, if you have this, uh, uh, this, this idea of the Christian life right now where it's just hard and it's just problems and it's problematic and there's no joy and there's no happiness and there's no victory and there's no sanctification, there's no growth, then you may want to start looking at your influences and start asking yourself, who am I patterning myself after, after all? Who am I following after? Whose example do I follow? The guys at work? Who am I modeling my life after? Who am I modeling my modesty after, ladies? TMZ? Or whatever the, the thing is. When I start quoting stuff like that, I get everything all mixed up and garbled. Sorry. The world. Lady Gaga. Whatever. And I know that in this church, no. But through the avenue of media and podcasts and technology, who knows who's this going to land on? They need to hear that what they need to be following is godly examples that God has graciously provided. He has graciously provided those examples for them. Imitate those, therefore, he says, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, do not be sluggish. Oh, and so now you see that this whole section really rounds off what he's been dealing with in, ver in chapter 5, verse 11. You see that there because there is an exegetical link because of what he began with when he said, you have become dull of hearing. Now he's saying, so that you will not become sluggish. And actually, dull of hearing and sluggish is the same thronoi. It's the same Greek word that simply means lazy. Spiritually lazy. You won't read. You won't study. You won't pray. You won't fellowship. You won't go to church. You won't evangelize. You won't read above your pay grade. You won't challenge yourself. You won't challenge your mind. You won't serve. You won't do the things that are going to produce perseverance and the assurance of hope. And you expect hope. No, and so what we should expect is rebuke, correction, admonition, exhortation. That is the heart the pastor here has. But he goes from imitation in general to a specific example that is given to us in verse 13, Abraham. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he couldn't swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. There is so much going on here, but let me just reflect for a moment on Abram. Then it was Abram. Then he became Abraham. I will say Abraham. Abraham is that remarkable example in church history going all the way back to the patriarchal period that God chose this man. And couldn't we say that the very first thing that Abraham is an example of is what it looks like for, for blind, lost, hell-deserving sinners, pagans, to be saved by the sovereign grace of God. Because as Joshua 24 tells us, Abraham was with his fathers in the land beyond the river, meaning Mesopotamia, crossing the Euphrates, and they were worshiping idols. He was an idolater, a pagan. He had no, he was not from good stock. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. He's a first generation Christian, if you would. 
He's a first-generation believer, and God takes this man, he takes this, this unworthy, undeserving sinner who was dead in trespasses and sins. If he would have left him in Mesopotamia, he would have sunk down into hell with all the other pagans. But God in his mercy, God in his grace, chose Abraham, saved Abraham, made a covenant with Abraham, and then said, I will pattern my salvific covenant with you and all the nations will know what it means to be saved the way I saved you, Abraham. And how many of us couldn't testify right now? Oh, if you would have known me. Oh, if you would have seen how lost I was. Oh, if you would have understood how far out of reach I was. I was further than Mesopotamia, baby. I was gone. And God, in His sovereign grace, reached down and picked up an unworthy, slimy, filthy worm like you and me. Yeah, don't come here if you're looking for self-esteem tips. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, America. It is not of yourself, American culture that is obsessed with the power of humanism, which is no power at all. The wisdom of humanism, which is no wisdom at all, is obsessed, obsessed with self I mean, have you guys seen that real corny commercial? I know you guys are too godly for television, but have you seen that corny commercial about the airlines? It's all about you. That's the message that we're hearing from our culture. From the moment that we are born to the day that we die, people are laying in hospital beds watching television and commercials that tell them it's all about you. And yet, the ABCs of the gospel is this, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So in looking at Abraham, this, this patriarch that was given a gift by God, the gift above all gifts, justification, salvation, we could say, I want to look at four principles to encourage us today because, like the people in the book of Hebrews, they were separated from Abraham by millennia, just like we are. And so we could be tempted to that. What does an ancient patriarch, what does an ancient primitive man like Abraham, how does that have any bearing on a 21st century man? Well, remember... These folks looking back thousands of years on Abraham, just like we do now, and it had relevance then and it has relevance now, and the first thing is, is that God's promise to Abraham is, therefore, for us. It was not given to us, but it is for us, meaning we can learn from his example. We can profit if we imitate his conduct, his faith. We can profit from the examples of what God did from him, and it may not be what you think. I'll get to that in a moment. Chapter, uh, excuse me, James chapter 5, you look there with me. Uh, Hebrews is not the only people that, that were told to look at the examples of old. James chapter 5 verse 10 were directed in the same way to look at Old Testament examples and to glean and to profit from them. So James 5.10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Okay, are you suffering right now? You might say, I'm not really suffering right now. I feel pretty good. My health is okay. The bills are paid. I'm safe. Life seems pretty good. I would say I'm there right now. No major health issues. No major financial issues. No, no, no catastrophes to report. But there is this other word here, patience, patience, because patience has more to do than just your circumstances around you. It has to do with the battles that you fight inside, your flesh, your sin, the world, the devil, the spiritual warfare that you are, on, that you are in, learning to bear up under the trials of your own wickedness. I love the hymn that says, Oh, weary of earth, myself, and sin. 
I pray that every single one of us would learn how sweet that hymn is. Weary of earth, myself, and sin. He says, we count those blessed, excuse me, he says, their example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job who has, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Isn't that remarkable? Turn with me to Job in the last chapter. Job in the very last chapter of Job so that you can see the perseverance that is spoken of here and what it's talking about because it has a redemptive, glorious, salvific application. Not just circumstantial, not just materialistic, not just physical, but spiritual. Job chapter 42, verse 10. Everybody there? The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him became, or before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and, and they consoled him and comforted him for all of the adversity that, that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And it is a text like that that Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon entitled, The Day of a Man's Death is Greater Than the Day of His Birth. And you, you look at a text like this and you say, okay, temporal suffering, Job, unspeakable suffering, temporal restoration, the compassion, and the fact that he restored his, his fortunes. But what does the thief on the cross have to benefit from this? The thief on the cross didn't have his fortunes restored. He died a miserable death, nailed to a cross, hanging next to Jesus. How does this verse apply to the thief on the cross and all the other people right now languishing across this country and this world, laying in their deathbeds, who will never have their temporal fortunes restored? I'll tell you how they benefit from this, because this is a picture, dear friends, not just of the temporal benefits of knowing the Lord, but of the superlative, spiritual benefits, unthinkable benefits that we have in the Lord, in Christ, in eternity. That's why when the author of Hebrews says, full assurance of hope until the end, right? he wants you to think eschatologically, not just temporal, not just, not just immediate. Oh, we have such a short, uh, not attention span, it's the opposite. We, ha we won't plan well spiritually as believers. We think, well, things have to go good this year. What we should say is, God, keep me. Help me to number my days. Give me a heart of wisdom. In other words, help me to have an eternal perspective on all of these things. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the Proverbs 31 woman laughs at the future. Laughs at calamity. Laughs at the prospect of fear. Laughs at disease. Laughs at, laughs at financial distress, laughs at worries and anxiety and depletion of health and problems in the home. She laughs at the future. And in the same breath, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For, because we can, we can understand temporal renewing day by day. Okay, I had a good day this day. Last year was a good year as a Christian. Okay, 
What about beyond that? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Memorize that. Meditate on that. Recite that to yourself. Speak that to yourself as you're going through it in this life. You're going to need to put that one in your back pocket, so to speak. God's promise is for us, and God's promise is sure. This is why Paul can talk like this. How can you be so certain, Paul, of eternal things? How can you speak with such an eternal perspective? This is how. Look back to Hebrews 6. And God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You know what's amazing about that? What's amazing about that is that God made it so that at the end of the day, what we have with the promises of God is an issue of God's faithfulness to us, not Abraham's faithfulness to God. So that's the wrong thing. We Yes, we can go to Abraham and see how, how, how he believed and, and see how he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And yes, we can see how he obeyed God come, as he was called out of Ur. We could see all of that. But more importantly, what this is stressing is God was faithful to Abraham, not that Abraham was faithful to God. And so he makes a unilateral covenant. He swears by himself. Matter of fact, you remember the covenant, don't you? He puts Abraham to sleep. <laughs> Darkness fell over Abraham. Put him to the side. Abraham, I got this. I will make it so that this covenant is ratified and so that the stipulations of the covenant are fulfilled and so that the promise of the covenant will be fully realized one day. If I leave it to you, Abraham, as much as I like you, you will mess it up. And so God in His grace swears by Himself, which means the moral character of God is on the line with the promises that He has made to you. So what are you going to do on your deathbed? Let me give you a let me give you some advice. Retell the promises of God back to Him. Tell Him of the things that He has promised you in Christ, which is not that the surgery will be successful. It's not that the medication will work. It is not that the family will have a happy ending. God has promised you something infinitely greater than that. So tell him his own promises back to him the way the author of Hebrews is recounting the promises of God and saying, God, you have sworn by yourself. Yes, my name is on the line, but your glory is on the line. Which is more important? God's glory. And because God's glory is on the line, there is no way that he can lie. And so if he said that if you confess with your heart, with your mouth, you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. These things are written for you so that you will know that you have eternal life. That's the way that you want to go out, brothers and sisters. You don't want to go out looking at a television screen. God's promises are sure. Not only are they sure, but they are thoroughly salvific. Look at the way that the author chooses to summarize all of this. Verse 14, he said to him this, this, this promise, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now, interesting way because he summarizes that. And I think the reason for that is twofold. Abraham being blessed by God signifies that God is promising to bring him into the land of promise. That's really what the blessings there are referring to which, if you've been following along in the book of Hebrews, the idea of inheritance and the land and Canaan and the new creation and the new Jerusalem and the city that is built by God, all of that is typological fulfillment of the land promises. In other words, when God promised Abraham that land, he meant way more than real estate. 
(laughs) in this world. As a matter of fact, we're told in Romans chapter 4 that by faith, because he was justified, he believed the promises, he became the heir of how much square footage? It says cosmos, the cosmos, the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is speaking about the fact that one day Abraham, what he was promised and what he could only see in a a minuscule fashion by traveling around Canaan is that every step that he took in the promises of God, every step he took on that land was signifying that one day he would be treading upon the streets of gold and little does Abraham know the type of rest that God was going to give him much further, much greater, much more extensive than anything that he knew. And therefore, he says, I will bless you. And he says, I will multiply you. Now, for sure, there's two ways when you're interpreting this to to see the fulfillment. There's the patriarchal aspect of it, and then there's the messianic aspect. The patriarchal aspect means that it is fulfilled in stages so that every time Abraham went into the land of Canaan, he took a little bit of land, he multiplied his descendants. There we see stages of fulfillment of this promise. And what are those stages of fulfillment? I'll tell you what they are. They are pledges that God is making of the total full fulfillment of the promise that is yet to come. These are just signs. They're just symbols. They're just little promises of Mordecai. This is a foretaste. This is a drop in the bucket, as it were. So God promised him much, much more than physical descendants. We know, if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3 we know that ultimately what is at work here is a spiritual progeny, a spiritual descendants, a spiritual humanity that God is going to make of this man that is going to number the, the, like the sands of the sea an innumerable multitude of descendants. Verse 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of of Abraham. Do you have faith like Abraham? Well, much of that will be predicated upon whether or not you're willing to follow in his examples and persevere to the end, because I want to leave you with the same promise that is extended to Abraham, and it's this. This is the last point. Not only are the, are the promises for us, not only are they have direct application, not only are the promises sure and certain, and not only are the promises salvific, but the promises are realistic. Look how he ends in verse 15. He says, Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. This is so glorious. I mean, when you're going through it, when you see no way out, when you're having a bad day, when when things didn't work out as you wanted them to. So what this is saying is that no matter what Uh, disappointments, no matter how disillusioned you are with your life in this world, no matter how disappointed you are at the way that things worked out, you have a promise that transcends all of that. All of that. And the call to imitate Abraham is to wait patiently like Abraham for God's promises. Now, last text. Go to chapter 11 of Hebrews, kind of preemptive strike here. Hebrews chapter 11, where Abraham is picked up again, and then everyone else in the hall of faith is picked up again. But, but here in Hebrews eleven thirteen, we see why we need to identify with him, because the same hope, the same promise remains for us. Listen to what it says. All of these died in faith. That's talking about everyone that just preceded, Abel, Enoch, uh, uh, Abraham, uh, Sarah, all of these that died in faith. He says, without receiving the promises. That is to mean without receiving the full promise, without receiving the, 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 the consummation of the promises, the eschatological realization of the promises. But having seen them afar off and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. 
And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would not have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So now, Old Testament typology made explicit of what was in the heart of Abraham when he was called and God called him beneath the stars out of his tent to look up into heaven, to hear the promises of God. What was burning in the heart of Abraham was a promise to something far greater. He looked under the stars and he suddenly realized that the architecture around him, the architect of the universe, was promising him something far beyond anything in this world. That's why they desired a better country. Abraham desired heaven. Heaven! And how you know that? Because he confessed, I am a stranger and an exile on this earth. I want you to go home and think about that today. How much of a stranger, stranger are you to this place? This is something we all struggle with. This is something we're all susceptible to, getting way too at home here. I am super comfortable living in this world. I am. I'm so comfortable living in this world. Don't get me started because then you'll think I'm not even a man of faith. I mean, I'm so comfortable. I, an AC, or got to be the right thing, AC, 73 degrees. No, no, it can't be 74. No, no, 72, too cold. You know, I am so comfortable in this place that my metal has to be tested by this text. When am I going to start living like more of a stranger, more of an exile? Well, that will reflect very much the way that you live. That will reflect very much the things that occupy your thinking, that occupy your time, that take up your money, where your resources go, where your energy is spent, what occupies your entertainment, everything. It will affect the way that you live if you want to live the way that Abraham lived. Let's pray together. Father, um, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to, in, a, in, a, in an act of self-examination, that you would test our hearts, loosen our grip on this world. Help us, Father, to not to be obsessed with what sparkles in this world, but help us, Lord, to like Abraham and all the people of God that have been since, help us to long for a, a, a new country, our own country, our heavenly home, where we really belong because we don't belong here, a heavenly dwelling in the new Jerusalem, in the city of God, whose builder and maker you are. We pray these things, that you would change our heart in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.